open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. Um, we are, as always, going to do some Q&R at the end this morning. So if there's anything that strikes you as a question or something that you want to bring up, um, please text the text number and uh, we'll take a look at it when we're done. There's a lot of really interesting details in this text. Uh, Brian read a lot of verses. Uh, we're not going to cover them all. Uh, what we're going to do is over the next two weeks, we're going to take kind of a broad overview of this story. We're going to take a look at the big themes and um, see what we can glean from it. So we're getting to the end of chapter 7 today, and then we'll, we'll finish through um, the first part of chapter 9 next week. As we begin, we're going to talk a little bit about this narrative in the context of all the other conversations that happen surrounding it. We're going to talk about flood narratives in general. We're going to talk about some of the literary qualities of this piece of scripture. We're going to talk about some of the scientific questions that everybody wants answered. Uh, and then we're going to take a look at maybe maybe some big ideas that we can walk away from, uh, from this story this morning. So the first thing I want to bring up is this idea of the flood as a cultural narrative. There are people groups all around the world that have a story in their ancient past about a great flood. There's tribes in Africa Many Native American tribes, groups in Central and South America, India, China, the Philippines, Thailand, Polynesia, all of these people groups seem to have independently developed stories of great floods in their uh, ancient historic past. And, and these, these stories are all very different. Sometimes um, the, the floods are caused by the gods, sometimes they're caused by uh, other things. Sometimes there's a, a person that's singled out from the people to be saved. A lot of times there's animals that are saved as well. Uh, sometimes they climb a mountain for safety. Other times they build a boat. And so there's a lot of diversity in these stories. And so cultural anthropologists recognize this and they, they come up with one of two explanations. One explanation is that, that flooding happens and so people have just made up this story about what if there was a really big flood. The other explanation is that there is somewhere an ancient cultural memory of a large flood in the distant past that connects pretty much all the cultures of the globe. I think that's a better explanation than like, well, people live near water and it floods, and so they made up a story about a big flood a long time ago. Not everybody agrees with that perspective, but I think that is a better understanding of the data, especially since we have the flood story in God's word. As we get closer to Mesopotamia, the flood stories get more interesting. There's three flood stories that... Um, are very close to the Genesis flood story, and they're called the Erudu Genesis, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which maybe you've read that, and the story of Atrahasis. These are all Sumerian, Babylonian, that kind of Middle Eastern area. These are flood stories from that 
part of the world. It's a similar place in the world that the Bible was written in. And there are a lot of similarities in these stories to the Bible. Um, there's there's a, a hero that is picked by the gods to be saved, and he has to save the animals, and he builds a boat. He has a different name in each of these stories because they come from a different culture. But if you read some of the stories, they sound very similar to the Genesis story. But there are some significant differences. If, if you remember in our study of ancient creation myths, we pointed out the differences between Babylon's view of creation and the Hebrew Bible's view of creation. The same thing happens with the flood. Uh, in the Babylonian myth, the reason the gods bring a flood is because people are too noisy. <laughs> They're just, they, you know, we, we keep having kids and we get, we're loud and it's annoying. And so the gods decide we're just going to destroy them all. That's a very different reason from what we read in scripture. Um, in the Babylonian story, one of the gods decides that that whole like killing everybody because they're too noisy thing is a bad idea. And so he sneaks down and he, uh, he uh, gives the news to the hero of the story. Hey, everybody's going to destroy you. And he kind of goes behind the other gods back and there's this intrigue that happens. Again, not, not what we read in Genesis. There's a lot of other things about these stories that are pretty fantastic, that the, the biblical story seems to um, bring a little more reasonability to. In the Babylonian story, it rains for only seven days. And if you're into kind of the like physicality of that, it's, it'd be really, really hard to get all that water to rain in seven days. A 40-day rainstorm makes a lot more sense. In the Babylonian story, the ark, the boat that they build, is a perfect cube I don't know if you, any of you are boat people, but that doesn't really float super well. And then at the end of the story, the, the hero of the Babylonian story sends out birds. And he sends them out in the exact opposite order that we see Noah send the birds out. And, and if you think about the way these birds work, the raven and the dove, and how the raven is a scavenger and the dove needs a, a, a dry place to land, doesn't make as much sense in the Babylonian story why they send those birds out in that order. But the bottom line is, is the Hebrew people are telling a story that everybody else in the known world knows. This is not, this is not something brand new to them. This is not something that, they've, that they're making up whole cloth. It's, it's a retelling of events that everybody in town would have known, yeah, that's, that happened. And Genesis gives us a different twist on it. I want to talk about a little bit about the literature of this section of Genesis because I think it's really beautiful. So first in, in verse 9, we read of chapter 6, these are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. The family records, if you, if you remember the, the word toledot, this is another... Um, distinction, division in the book of Genesis. Every so often we get this phrase, these are the records, this is the family history, this is the story. And the author is setting up a new section of the book, the family records of Noah. And then he tells this story about the flood and the flood story is organized and it's, it's hard to see in English, but it's organized as in what's called a chiasm. And if you, if you study um, the Bible much, you'll run across this word, uh, what, 
what a chiasm is, it's a, is it's a poetic literary device that takes a passage of literature and matches up the first section and the last section, the second section and the second to last section, the third section and the third to last section, all the way to a center point. And then the center point is the most important part of the story. So here's the chiasm of the flood story. Um, we start with an introduction, we end with a conclusion. There's violence in the second section. There's a covenant that's going to prevent violence in the second to last section, and so on and so forth until you get to the very center of the narrative, which is chapter 8, verse 1, which we're not going to get to until next week, but the very center of the story is God remembered Noah. And as we read this story and as we geek out over the details, whether they're literary details or scientific details, Moses's big idea here is telegraphed to the way he organized the story, which is this story of judgment, of destruction, the centerpiece of it is the mercy and grace of God. So, let's talk about how big the flood was. At first glance, as we read through this text, it seems like it's telling us that the flood covered the entire globe. The whole world was covered by water. But that question we have to ask is, is, is that how the ancient audience would have understood this? And maybe, maybe it is. But it, it's possible to read it differently. Look at chapter 7, verses 19 and 20. It says, The water surged even higher on the earth, and all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the water surged above them more than 20 feet. And then in verse 23, He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, from mankind to livestock, to creatures that crawl, to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left, and those that were with him in the ark. So you read that and you think, well, the water covered the whole earth 20 feet higher than Mount Everest or whatever the tallest mountain was back then. And, and that makes sense, but that's not the only way to understand this language. There, the, the story frequently uses the word all, and usually we think all means all, right? But we don't always use the word all that way. If if I say, you ate all the pizza, do you imagine that I'm talking about a certain subset of pizza that we know about? Or do you imagine that I'm accusing you of eating all of the pizza in the entire world? Because if all always means an absolute all of something, that's what I'm saying. So it doesn't necessarily have to be all of the world. It could be all of an area of the world that the author is trying to key in on. The word for earth, the, all, the water covered all of the earth. Our Bible translates that word, it's the word eretz. And it could also be translated land. It's possible that the word doesn't mean the whole globe. Genesis 13, 9, we see Abraham and Lot. And they're both 
shepherds and they have too many sheep and their herdsmen are fighting with each other. And so Abraham says to Lot, isn't the whole land before you? Separate me and if you go to the le- separate from me, if you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. That's the same word, the whole land, all the earth, we could translate it that way. But surely Abraham's not saying the entire globe is before you. He's saying these, this area, this plain is all before you. Genesis 41, it says, every land came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain for the famine was severe in every land. Is the author intending us to believe that the Eskimos and the Aboriginal Australians and everyone around the world came to buy grain, or is he talking about a smaller area that the famine is happening in? So if you read this text and you see very clearly that there's a global flood, I think there's good evidence for that. But if you don't, you can make an argument that we're talking about a large regional flood here. And the reason I think this is important is not because we need to figure it out today, but because we need to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And there, there, are, there are ministries and leaders that will tell you that if you don't understand, if you don't interpret this story the way they do, then you've left the faith. You, you're not following the Bible anymore. You don't believe in the word of God. And I just don't think that's true. I think there are faithful Christians that see these texts in different ways for different reasons. And it's worth having a conversation about and not uh, calling somebody a heretic because they don't see it quite the same way. The reality is, and this is why most people struggle with this, is, is modern science doesn't seem to affirm this idea of a global flood. And this isn't my area of expertise at all. I spent hours this week reading websites about uh, flood geology and rebuttals and stuff. And at the end, I'm as confused as when I started. But we do have lots of scientific evidence for huge regional floods in Mesopotamia, in the Black Sea. There's even um, one that happened uh, in the Columbia Basin between Washington and Oregon. And it's possible that this population of early humans living in the same basic region, they've come out of the Garden of Eden and they've started to spread around the world. They're all destroyed by God for their wickedness in a flood that covers all the area of the world that they lived in. I think there are theological reasons for understanding the flood to be universal in scope. I think God is destroying wicked humanity. The New Testament, as we're going to see in a little bit, uses the flood as an example of this kind of destruction, of of complete destruction. But if wicked humanity is concentrated to a small geographic area, then it's possible that the flood could have been less than global. I have an image from one of the many websites I went to this week, which shows the Saudi Arabian Peninsula completely flooded in an area that would have destroyed all of the civilizations that we know of that were alive at that time. But I don't think it matters as much as we might want it to matter. God is talking very specifically about the destruction of evil humanity and the recreation of the world. 
And that's what matters in the flow of the story of the Bible. If you're asking questions like many, um, many science-loving Christians do, is did Noah's flood carve the Grand Canyon? Maybe. But is that the story that Moses is telling? I don't think so. So what's the story that Moses is telling? This is a story about the heart of God. This whole story is God's story. Noah doesn't speak until the end of chapter 9. He is not an important player in this narrative, even though he seems like the main character. God is continually speaking and acting throughout this story. Genesis 6, 4 and 5 and 6 says, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Remember in Genesis chapter 1 when the Lord saw that it was good and he saw that it was good and he saw that it was good and he saw that it was good. Well, now he looks and he sees that it is not good. It is bad. It is wicked and evil. He commands mankind, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You are my image bearers. Make my rule and reign cover the land. But what happens? They were fruitful and they multiplied wickedness and evil. It's interesting, when, when we think of God being angry, I think we think of the flood. But it never says that God is angry in this story. Have you ever noticed that? God isn't angry here. He's, he's really sad. He's grieved. He's heartbroken. The, the people that he made to live in harmony with him and one another and the planet have just completely gone off the rails. They've been influenced by their own depraved hearts. They've been influenced by demonic forces. We talked about that last week. And they've, they've multiplied violence and destruction everywhere they go. And God is grieved. There's, there's an idea in, in theology that God doesn't feel things. That all, every time that we read about God's feelings, it's, it's called an anthropopathism, which means uh, we, we, we describe God as having feelings like we do, even though he doesn't have those feelings. And there's an extent in which God doesn't have feelings like we do, because our feelings are broken and sinful, and they, they come and they go, and they're hard to control. But how do we think that we got feelings if our creator didn't already possess them? How would he build something good into us that he doesn't know? See, I think the reality is, is when God says he feels something, I think we need to take him at his word. That God feels things and he feels things more so than any of us do. His feelings are better and purer and stronger they're not confusing or sinful. They're always good and right. 
And at the beginning of this text, God is grieved. So what's God going to do about it? If we go back to the beginning, Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And down in verse 9, it says, Then God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, we see creation happen. And we see the starting point of creation is this dark, chaotic ocean. And as part of his goodness and his love, God calls the waters back and dry land appears. And so by the time we get to chapter 6 and we we envision this idea that God is going to bring water to cover the land, we should immediately go, oh, that's exactly the opposite of the creation story. The flood story is an undoing of creation. The waters cover back over the land and the order of the creation falls back into disorder and chaos. Those of us that are parents, you probably like, when you're, when you're disciplining your children, you probably like the idea of natural consequences. I know I do. When my children run in the house and they slip and fall and hurt themselves, I am a little sad, but I am mostly uh, justified and say, I told you not to run in the house. That feels better to me than if you run in the house, I'm taking your iPad away. I mean, I could do that too. It's within my power as a parent, but it, it seems like learning from your pain and your fall is a natural consequence of your disobedience. With that kind of paradigm in mind, though, we approach the flood story and it, it just seems like a really unnatural consequence. The people are, are, are wicked, they're sinful, they're, they're abandoning God, and, and God's just going to destroy them all. He's just had it up to here with people and he's going to kill everybody. But that's not really what's going on here. In Genesis 6, verses 11 through 13, we read, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. The word corrupt and the word going to destroy them, those are the same Hebrew words. God is saying that the world is ruined. It's been corrupted. It's been spoiled. And what God says he's going to do, he says, I'm going to destroy them. He's going to continue the corruption of the world. He's going to do more of what the people are already doing to themselves. Hebrew scholar Tim Mackey translates the passage this way. The land was ruined before God and the land was filled with violence. So God saw the land and look, it was ruined. 
For all flesh had caused the ruin of its way upon the land. So God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come up before me because the land is filled with violence because of them. And look, I am going to cause their ruin with the land. So this idea of the flood coming to bring chaos and disorder to the world is is not some kind of arbitrary punishment for sin. It's God saying, this is the way humanity is taking the planet. This is the way humanity is running their lives. This is the trajectory that they are on. I'm just going to speed up the process. If I open my refrigerator and I find a little Tupperware container in the back of something that's growing mold on it, leaving it in the refrigerator for any amount of time is not going to fix the mold problem. It's only going to get worse. The only scenario that works for me in that instance is to take it out of the refrigerator and throw it away. It has been spoiled. It has been ruined. Daniel Hawk says, the introduction of the flood story suggests that God has seen where the ruination of creation is headed and has decided to accelerate the process to its completion. The plain sense of the Hebrew text conveys something very different from most English translations, which are perhaps influenced by the view of an angry, punitive deity. The flood was an ancient symbol of destruction and disorder, and so is a fitting medium for the dissolution of creation as it overwhelms every boundary and returns creation to the primordial, undifferentiated deep that existed before Yahweh spoke boundaries into being. We are left with the sense that God is not so much sending the flood to punish the world as much as facilitating, through the flood, the inevitable descent into chaos caused by human destructiveness and violence. God ruins an already ruined creation, and in doing so creates conditions for a reordering and a renewal to take place. So what he's saying is is that the flood story is just God pushing fast forward on where humanity is already headed. And the crazy thing is that this is in reality the way that God most often displays judgment. We think about God's anger and God's wrath, and we can find stories throughout the text of Scripture where he actively intervenes in the lives of people and destroys wickedness and stands up for the oppressed. But more often than not, God lets people feel the natural consequences of their life choices. As you read the Bible, judgment doesn't come because God flies off the handle in a fit of rage. It comes because he resigns himself to letting people go the way they are already determined to go. Paul picks up on this in Romans, and this is a large section from the first chapter of Romans. He says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And they, because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do, not, do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. I think Paul here is keying in on some of this flood story. Three times in this passage, he says, God delivered them. God delivered them. Your Bible might say, God gave them over. It doesn't, Paul's not talking about an experience where God came down in a pillar of fire and judgment and destroyed people. He's talking about a scenario where people were just allowed to go their own way to their ultimate destruction. And this morning, this is an idea that should really bear weight on our hearts if we are willingly, continually walking in sin. There's, Paul has a huge list of sin there. And some of it's sin that we would say, yeah, that's terrible. And other sins we would go like, well, maybe. I don't know. I do that sometimes. It's not that big a deal. But in God's mind, sin is the road to destruction and death. And for God to look at me and say, the way you are going is leading to death. You need to turn around. And for me to go, nah, I'm not into it. I'd rather keep going this way. And for him to just go, okay, do what you want. I warned you. That's a really heavy thing to think about. I don't want God to let me go my own way. I want God to pull me out of the fire, right? And this is what God is constantly doing. God, if you are are in a place today where you're living in sinful behaviors that you are unwilling to turn from, God is wooing you back just by sitting here and hearing this message. God is saying, turn around, stop living your life this way. The word repent in the Bible means to turn around from the things that you're about to Christ. The reality is there will be a day when every person in this world that gives God the middle finger and goes their own way will be allowed to completely go to their own destruction. So this is what we're seeing play out in the flood. 
that humanity has determined to destroy itself. And God has said, okay, I'm going to help you along. But this is not the only place where this kind of language shows up. When we get to the New Testament, the flood comes up again. In, in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about his return at the end of the age. And he says, concerning that day and hour when he's going to return, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. And then he says, as the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. So Jesus tells us two useful things here. He says, when he returns, he will renew the world. He will restore the world. He will bring it back to the way it's supposed to be. He will get rid of all of the evil and wickedness and make all things new. The second thing he says is that the world is going to be caught off guard. In the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving, giving in marriage. Everything was business as usual. The, the times and the seasons and the, um, pr- uh, the, the priorities of everyone in the world was just you know, it's, it's a Sunday. What do I got to get done on Sunday? Tomorrow's Monday. I got a work meeting and then we got to go get some groceries and my kids are getting married. And so we got to buy some supplies for that. And life was just going and going and going. And nobody recognized that the flood was coming. And that's kind of crazy because elsewhere we read that Noah is a preacher of righteousness. That Noah spends much of his time before the flood telling people that the flood is coming. And no one believes them. And they're all caught off guard. So today, as the kingdom of God blossoms and spreads around the world through the hearts of Jesus' people, the world at large still continues to decay. We look outside and we see it everywhere. We see political systems that seem broken beyond repair. We see men and women just committing horrific acts of violence against one another. We see war and greed and destruction all around. And a day is coming when God will finally say to everyone that refuses to give their allegiance to Jesus, okay, I'm going to let you have what you want. And I wonder today if if some of us today are in danger of being washed away in that flood when Jesus makes the world new. There's an assumption that everybody that comes to church is a Christian, but that's not necessarily true. It's, It's pretty easy to pretend that you believe in Jesus. It's pretty easy to pretend that you trust in his work on the cross to save you. But maybe deep down today, you know, like, yeah, I'm just kind of doing my own thing. I know what's right. I know what God wants from me. But I want to do this other thing. And today, God is saying, turn around. Trust in Christ. Believe the gospel. Recognize that your 
goodness isn't good enough for a holy and just God and you need the goodness of another, goodness of Jesus on your behalf. Because someday, and nobody knows, Jesus says he doesn't even know, someday he's going to return and make the whole world new. And everyone that wants to continue on to death will be given what they asked for. But today, there's still time to get in the boat, to trust in the person and the work of Jesus, to turn your life over to the saving power of Christ. But Christian, if you're here and you're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus, I believe the gospel, I am adopted into the family of God, you have advanced warning of the coming judgment. You've already been saved from it. So, so who are you telling about it? Who are you warning? Who are you pleading with to get in the boat with you to trust in Christ? This is our, one of our callings as Christians is to let everyone know that judgment is coming that this world will be made new. And just like it was back in the days of Noah, people will be caught off guard by it. The first half of this story reflects on God's heart. He's grieved. He's saddened. He's, he's, not, he's not sadistic and, and vengeful. He wishes badly that his creation would live in harmony with who he is, but they just won't. And he decides he's going to start over. He's going to choose Noah and begin again. Next week, we'll talk a little bit about the covenant that he makes with Noah and, and how he plans to do that. But this morning, I want us to feel the weight of not just this this act of judgment that happened in the past, but the act of judgment that's going to happen in the future, that hopefully we've all prepared our hearts for, that we've been placed in the ark of Jesus and saved from the coming judgment. And if that's the case, let's be serious about how we're living our lives, what our priorities are, who we're, who we're telling the good news of the gospel, that judgment is coming, but Jesus saves. Jesus is better than that path that you're walking down. Let's take some questions. Okay. Are the consequences of the destruction by flood intended to be seen as a manifestation on his compassionate character similar to Adam and Eve's banishment from the garden? Is this why he is grieved because it is not his plan but a necessary prevention of complete ruin? I think that's a helpful parallel. 
Um, one of the things that I think is interesting about what God does throughout Genesis is it seems like he's kind of experimenting. And I don't, I don't believe that's something that God really does because I think God knows everything in advance, so experiments aren't really a thing that he could do. But God does a lot of things for our benefit, doesn't he? He, he shows us things. He tells us things. He, even in, he asked Adam, hey, Adam, where are you when he was hiding? Did God, he knew where Adam was, but he wanted Adam to realize where he was. So I think a lot of what we see in Genesis with God creating the world and then it going badly, and then the flood and recreating the world. And we're going to see that's going to go badly as well. Spoilers. And then God's going to pick this one guy, Abraham. He's going to do his whole plan through Abraham's family. And that family is going to go haywire too. And we see over and over and over again, God adjusting things to bring everything right. And I don't think he does that because he's unsure of what to do, I think he does that because he's showing us how unreliable we are and how good and gracious he is. So yeah, I I think there's a huge piece of mercy and grace involved in the flood story in, in saying he could have just destroyed the whole thing and gone back to, you know, the Trinity living in, in perfect love forever. But he was committed, he'd promised, he was committed to this group of creatures called human beings, and he wasn't going to fail them. If the flood occurred prior to the continental drift, then the flood could be localized all landmass as one. Yeah, um... That seems true. (laughs) Here's the thing about the, so there's, there are these two competing fields of, of geology, right? There's uh, what we would consider mainstream geology, which believes that the earth is four and a half billion years old. There's all these processes and take evolution, evolution out of it. But there's this, this idea that the earth is old and there's been a lot of cataclysms and things that have happened over the years. And then there's this other system of geology that uh, bases its foundation on this idea that there was a global flood about 6,000 years ago. And that global flood is responsible for all of the features of geology that we see today. And if you read a a Christian flood geologist, uh, there's a lot of really interesting stuff out there. And it very quickly gets beyond my understanding. I mean, there's like water cycles and, and uh, pressure and sedimentary rocks and all kinds of volcanic craziness. And, and experts in the field dedicate their lives to seeing the world through that lens and figuring out how this reality that they believe to be a global flood affected the world around them. But then you read somebody from the mainstream perspective that critiques the flood geologist, and they seem to have all these reasons why all of the presuppositions of the flood geologist are wrong. And again, it very quickly gets past my ability to even understand what the issues that they're arguing about with are. So I think when we talk about like Pangea or the, the one land mass and stuff, if, if, you, if you hold to a young earth flood geology kind of perspective, you would say that that all happened about 6,000 years ago 
and then the continents expanded out from there over a period of a thousand years or something like that. The other more mainstream scientific position would say that that took millions and millions of years of slow plate tectonic drift and that if it had happened in such a short amount of time, it would have released an amount of energy that would have like vaporized the atmosphere. Which one of those things are true? I have no idea. <laughs> and, and I think the, 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 the caution that I have is that I want to trust what scripture says is true because I believe that it's true. And if it's actually saying that 6,000 years ago, the entire world was covered by water because it rained for 40 days and there were these other things that happened. And if that's, if that's the message of scripture, then I believe that that's what happened. But I also want to be humble to say maybe, maybe that's not necessarily what Scripture is telling us. And if science as a whole is saying we look at the world around us and it doesn't seem like this event fits what we see, I don't want to say, well, I trust science over Scripture, but I want to ask the question, is Scripture telling me that this is what happened? Or am I bringing assumptions into this that I don't need to be bringing? And at the end of the day, I don't know personally the answer to that. I think there's some really good arguments for it being a global flood. Um, I think there's some other good arguments for being a regional flood. I don't know that it matters that much to what Mo the story that Moses is telling. But if it's important to you, and if you've got a science bent, there's tons of resources out there that you can pursue and come to a conclusion on. What I often see in a lot of the, the resources that are arguing for a global flood is they're not, they're not using scripture anymore. They, they use scripture as a, as a jumping off point and then they just add stuff. Like, well, Pangea, the, the one landmass thing. Well, we, we, we know that that's a thing and so we have to figure out that somewhere. And then they talk about like, well, the animals were hibernating. That's how they got them on the ark and the ark didn't, you know, they, they, could, they could take care of the animals because they all hibernated. And um, when God says all the creatures, he doesn't mean like worms and things because that would have been too hard to get all the little bugs in there. And so, and I'm not, I'm not saying that that's a good argument or not. I'm just saying that a, a scientist who is starting with this narrative has to add a bunch of stuff to it in order for it to make sense anyway. And so you've got two camps of people that are looking at an event that may or may not have happened a long time ago, guessing about how it went together. And I don't, I don't want to say that that's a futile um, use of your time, but I think we all have to be aware that that is what we're doing, is we're making predictions about something that happened a long time ago and trying to fit it into how we understand the world today. The, um, the idea that uh, is kind of in the center of the scientific debate is something called uniformitarianism, 
where most researchers that look into the past assume that things happen in the past the way that they happen now. If, if the Colorado River carves out a centimeter of silt every year, and I don't know that that's the number or not, then we can extrapolate that back millions and millions of years to when the Colorado River was at the top of the canyon, and that's how long it took the canyon to be carved. The uh, young earth creationist perspective says that, well, how do we know that that's true? How do we know that what happened in the past or what is the same as what happened now? Maybe there was a giant global flood that carved out the Grand Canyon in a matter of days. And so that's the, the primary like uh, methodological challenge to, to, in the whole science thing. And you just, have to, you just have to look into it and study it and um, ask yourself questions when you read scientific literature. Is this person acting in good faith? Are they hiding stuff because they want to prop up their view? Uh, and I think, I think you'll find people on both sides that are doing good science and both people that are trying to just make the other side look bad on, on both sides. And um, I think it's, if it interests you, it's a worthwhile pursuit. I don't have the bandwidth to be an expert in geology, so I, I don't spend a whole much, lot of time on it. What's this? Last question. Pictures are powerful expressions of truth. I say this to raise this question. Is it possible and even likely that the Bible is more than just a story to believe as literally as possible, but as an extremely sophisticated and divine tool that God has given us for developing a greater understanding of all things? If we believe in a God of higher order, then what is the path of developing a higher order of understanding? I would argue that it's not in demanding a literal understanding of the Old Testament or conversely conforming Jesus to the Old Testament. If conforming need should be done, isn't the Old Testament that should be conformed to Christ? A couple of things that stand out to me there. Um, I think when we take a look at the Old Testament, we believe the Old Testament is the Word of God because Jesus believed the Old Testament is the Word of God. Like that's that's what connects us to these the Hebrew Scriptures, and so we need to understand the Old Testament the way Jesus understood the Old Testament. And if Jesus is reading the Old Testament in a way that he sees it as authoritative and truthful and real, then I'm siding with Jesus on that. And so if he reads Genesis 2 about the nature of marriage and says, this is the, this is the way it's supposed to be, I'm going to take his understanding of Genesis as a helpful way to see its theology of marriage. So we read Jesus, we read him say that, um, the coming of the Son of Man will be like it was in the days of Noah. And so that tells me that Jesus didn't think that Noah was uh, just a made-up story. Jesus thought that the flood was a real thing. He, talk, he even brings up um, people that aren't directly in the story as marrying and giving in marriage and stuff. He seems to have some idea that this is an event that really took place. And so I'm not willing because of my trust in Christ to say that this is just a, a fable or a story that's meant to teach a moral lesson. I, I think if it was that, Jesus would have seen it very differently, as well as the apostles that bring it up in their letters. So I think you can separate that from the idea of a, a, the science question. I think a, a, a large regional flood could fulfill that same 
understanding that Jesus has, that these were real people in a real place with real things. But I think to discard what we read in the Old Testament as either mythic or just a story of example um, puts us in a category where we seem to have a better understanding of the Bible than Jesus did, and I'm uncomfortable with that. Okay, good questions, you guys. It's a hard one. We're going to take communion. Um, Our faith is grounded, not in the flood story, but in Jesus Christ, right? But we're going to read one more passage in Genesis chapter 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that same day, Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, entered the ark along with Noah's wife and his three sons' wives. They entered it with all the wildlife according to their kinds, all livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that crawl on the earth according to their kinds, every flying creature, all the birds, and every winged creature according to their kinds. To every creature that has the breath of life in it came to Noah and entered the ark. Those that entered, male and female of every creature, entered just as God had commanded him. Then the Lord shut him in. God shuts the door on the ark. God asked Noah to build the boat. He told him how to build the boat. He brought the animals to him, and he shut the door to protect him from the flood. The grace of God in the story of Noah shows us that salvation is God's work. He does it for us. We can't save ourselves. And as we take communion together, as we sing, the reminder is the bread and the cup representing the body and the blood of Christ. These are the things that save us. We do not save ourselves. We are incapable of doing enough or being enough or uh, living a good enough life that God says, yeah, you're in. We are broken, sinful people, and it's Jesus' work on the cross that saves us. And we are brought through the storm, not by our own good ideas, but by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus on the cross. And so my encouragement to you this morning, as we think about God being grieved over the state of humanity, as we think about Jesus warning that a recreation is coming again. As we think about our position in Christ, if you're a Christian this morning, you've been saved by his grace through faith. I would just encourage you to spend time thinking about that and thank him. Thank him for the salvation that you have. Thank him that you are his. You are safe. You are cared for you are loved. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.